This is Milton Walters, and you're listening to Adapting in My Grief. I'm going to be talking to people and hear their stories regarding their experiences with grief, the loss of their loved one, the importance of the support they received, and how they've learned to adapt to a life without their loved one. I've known Joe Powell for many years. His family and my late wife's family uh, all grew up in Hobart and knew each other in the 70s and 80s. In fact, Bernadette used to babysit Joe as a young kid. Joe's carved out a very successful career for himself. He's been a CEO of an ASX-listed company. He spent many years before that as a senior executive at Seek. And back in the day when I first got to know him, he was at Optus. He's also on some boards today, uh, including his beloved Richmond Football Club. He's married to Rachel, herself a very senior executive, successful senior executive, I should say, at zero, and has three children. But back in 2002, Joe and his wife Rachel were in bed one Sunday morning when he received a call that really turned his and his family's world upside down. His younger brother Tom, who was travelling overseas, was missing. On an overnight train trip, he simply disappeared. Hi Joe, how are you going? Good, thanks Milt. Well, let's start with that 2002 phone call. Can you take me back to that and how it's unfolded effectively? Yeah, sure. You're uh, you know testing the memory. It's been uh, you know 18 uh, coming up or over 18 years now. But uh, yeah, I still vividly remember it. It was about uh, 10 o'clock uh, on the on a Sunday morning, and uh, Rachel and I were living in Sydney at the time. We didn't have any uh, children then. We'd we'd moved up from uh, from Melbourne to, to Sydney in uh, sort of 90, 98, I think it was. Yeah, and the, the the phone rang, which was unusual even back then, um, you know, of a, of a Sunday morning, and uh, I was probably a, a little bit wary, given you, you don't get many phone calls at that time of the uh, of the morning on the weekend. So, I answered the phone, and um, it was uh, uh, one of Tom's mates uh, who uh, had been travelling with him, and, and Tom had been living in uh, in London, doing the thing that a number of our family did, me included, you know, travelling around the world and working out of London. Um, and he uh, had been on a trip to um, to Morocco and then coming up uh, through Spain, and uh, one of his mates was studying in Spain. Uh, and, uh, yeah, the mate that he was travelling with uh, gave me a ring and um, and said, I've got some bad news for you, and, um, and he said, uh, I- I'm not sure where Tom is. We were on a train together coming up from uh, Morocco, coming uh, through to Madrid, and... Um, Rodney got off the, the train that morning and uh, Tom's bag was still on the train, uh, but he wasn't. And so how long had it been since he'd seen Tom? It was about 24 hours. So I think uh, Rodney sort of probably thought uh, thought for the best and, and hoped that Tom might turn up. Um, so he sort of grabbed Tom's Tom's bag at the, at the train, uh, but then within 24 hours when there was... Uh, um, you know, he hadn't been heard from. Uh, literally, he'd sort of disappeared. Then Rodney was concerned, and uh, and Rodney knew that you know uh, I'm one of uh, seven uh, children, and uh, you know Tom was the youngest, and I was the middle child. So I had a close relationship with uh, with Tom, so he thought to uh, to give me a call. And how old was Tom at the time? Tom was uh, 26, I think, at the time. Yeah. And so was that one of those train trips where they had the bar and all that sort of stuff on it? Was a and I mean, was he partied that and just simply no sight? So- I mean, just yeah, it's it's still it's still a bit of a mystery. I mean, um, you know, Tom um, 
Tom did did know how to enjoy himself. So um, you know, and they'd been travelling up from Morocco. I mean, ironically, he was supposed to have been in in France skiing at the time with uh, with some mates, but there was no snow. So he decided he he loved travelling. So he he decided he needed to go somewhere over the Christmas New Year break and. Uh, you know, connected with his friend uh, Rodney, who was another another Tassie guy, and uh, decided to spend some time in in Morocco, then back up in uh, in Spain. So you receive a phone call, and I imagine it's very out of character for Tom to. So your first instinct must have been something's not right. Seriously, not right here. Yeah, it was. I mean, I'm I'm not a big um, uh, crier, or you know, uh, <laughs> it takes a little bit to uh, or less so these days to uh, to get me emotional but um, once I got off the call I actually cried um, and I just felt that there was something deeply wrong uh, because uh, you know Tom was uh, you know he was a, a well-traveled uh, person by then and for him to just to go missing and disappear was was so so out of character so uh, yeah I, I wept for uh, for a couple of minutes um, straight after I got the phone call and it just didn't feel right where did it go from there well you know one of the one, I guess one of the great things about being in a in a big family was you know you, you turn straight to uh, to family to begin with uh, obviously my wife Rachel um, you know to uh, to start with and you know rolling forward Rachel did an amazing um, you know amount of work as we had to coordinate to to get over to uh, to Spain and uh, and, uh, and 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 kick off a search but it was really just family I, I had to ring up um, you know mum and dad who were up in northern New South Wales at that stage they'd uh, retired up there um, and I had two brothers and uh, and a sister in in Sydney where we were living at the time so it was literally you know, working the phones and uh, and and sort of telling people this is the news, and trying to digest that, and then trying to work out a plan of what we do next. Mm. I remember you saying that you, you were at Optus at the time. Yep. And that one of the was it the MD of Optus. Yep. You know, was Paul O'Sullivan in, was yeah. incredibly supportive and and assisted as well. Yep. In terms of getting you on your way, in a way. Yeah, he was. Yeah, and um, I mean, you know, we were really fortunate that um, you know uh, my brother Mark and and John worked for for, for bigger corporate organisations too, and. Uh, you know, we were fortunate to have that that family and friends support, but also that support of the the businesses that we worked with. So yeah, pretty quickly within a few days, we were uh, planning to uh, John and Mark and myself to uh, to jump on a plane and uh, and get over to to Spain to to literally try and find him. I remember uh, maybe I've got this wrong, but we on the I don't remember seeing that on the Today Show. Was it? In Australia, or was it in Spain, or yeah, it was. Uh, well, it was early January, so um, you know he went missing on about the. I think we got you know third, uh, fourth, fifth of January, something like that, that we got the news. So uh, at that time of the year, it's it's pretty slow news time. So um, and an Australian going missing, um, you know, over in Spain was sort of picked up by um, by a lot of the news. Here. So you and your brothers, you get over to Spain. Yeah. Um, what happens from there? Where do where do you go? Yeah. Well, where do we start? Well, once again, we were fortunate because. Um, um, one of our cousins, uh, Dave Carmont, who was uh, an Australian who'd uh, based himself in, in Spain quite a, uh, a long time ago before Tom went missing, uh, was living in Barcelona um, with his, his family there. So this was uh, uh, my mum's uh, uh, nephew. So we were really fortunate that uh, Dave lived in Spain. Um, he worked for Nike um, and uh, they were another <laughs> great supporter of us in the in the time we were we were over there but Dave spoke fluent Spanish uh, so we literally jumped on a plane and coordinated uh, to, to meet with uh, to meet with Dave in in Madrid um, and and then got together with him and then started to to work out you know what 
what uh, what we were going to do next and you know we had to get a we got a private investigator um, you know we sat down and planned out a whole lot of um, things that we needed to do um, to uh, to find him. So, what sort of um, you know, geographically, what sort of distance are we talking about that you, that your search is within? Oh, it was it was hundreds of kilometres. Because in the end, we we did a and my wife Rachel did an amazing <laughs> bit of research work here, uh, trying to to pinpoint who was on the train, you know, with him and, and through Rodney, who he was travelling with, and. We chased down, I'll never forget the guy's name, a guy called Jesse Skidmore, who uh, was a, an American uh, student from the US, and Rach managed to track him down through uh, through connections of connections. And and uh, But long story short, we were able to, to map out who was the last person to see him on the train, um, and that gave us um, an idea of where we needed to search to, to try to find him. Now we did a whole lot of things when we were over there in terms of the private investigator trying to work out if if, if there's something else had happened. You know, we had news media over there. You know, um, you know, we, we had searches. You know, we 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 had flyers. All those things that you do when you're trying to find someone. But that was all coming to uh, to not much. So after a, I think it was a, a week or two, we decided, okay, we need to map out where if he's come off the train, we need to map it out. And we got. These military maps and and followed the um, you know the uh, the the train track. Uh, we actually got on the train to to work out you know uh, you know the distances and speeds and the like, and literally just mapped out. Well, if he's come off the train, it must be from this point to this point. And so from there, uh, were you walking the tracks? I mean, yeah, we we, we were. In fact, we, you know, Tom had about uh, I think it was about thirty of his his mates from London flew over. Um, you know, Dave was able to marshal a whole lot of Nike people. Um, to uh, to join the uh, the search and we literally gave people a map um, we gave them a time that they were to start and we literally all just walked the train track um, on a uh, on a on a cold Saturday morning um, and the hope was that in doing that we would uh, either find him or sort of work out that okay he hasn't come off the train then uh, we need to look at other alternatives. other options yeah. yeah and so how did it unfold when you found him. Yeah, it did. Um, you know, our, our eldest brother John. Um, I was walking with Mark. Um, you know, going uh, doing our, our part of the uh, the the track, and uh, our eldest brother John. I can't remember who he was. Uh, he might have been walking with one of the uh, the Nike guys, uh, and John found him. So uh, so Mark and I got the phone call, um, and yeah, we uh, we we all sort of uh, we obviously caught off the search because it was a little bit dangerous walking on the train tracks and. Uh, uh, and then uh, we went to the the spot where uh, where Tom's body was found. Must have looking back on that, I'm getting emotional thinking about it. Actually, yeah. just three brothers standing together, looking at their dead brother in a by the side of a train track. Yeah, it was. It was milk. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it's still emotional even uh, 18 years uh, later. Um, but it it was really important for us as a as as a family to to find him. Mm. Um, you know, we. Uh, when someone just disappears, it's 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 hard to fathom, and all sorts of weird and wonderful um, thoughts go through your mind. Because as humans, there's this great hope. There's this, you know, that we will find him, and and you try to, you know, there were sightings of him at this train station, and and this and right. that, and and you, you you never give up hope. But but when we did find him, it was it was deeply sad, and and you know. It was literally the, it was the four of us because uh, Dave Carman, our, our great cousin, was there, and John and Mark and uh, and myself, and um, it was uh, it was it was deeply sad. But it was also really important to know that 
we'd found him mm. um, and and in some way we could start the the process of grieving and 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 get to, to some point of, of closure because coming back and this was a couple of weeks into the trip but the thought of coming back um, and and not finding him was just something that we we just couldn't comprehend mm. so um, it was uh, yeah it was a, it was a deeply sad time and I can imagine who makes the call to your parents yeah yeah I think um, I think John did that and um, you know, we, we, we called our respective, um, you know, wives and, and, and our other brothers and sisters and, yeah, and shared that news. So it was uh, – it's all a bit of a blur now, you know. I'm sure. But, but uh, I remember it being a, uh, yeah, deeply sad and, and, and emotional time. Um, and, we, yeah, we had, we had a little bit of time there before, obviously, they had to take his, uh, his body away. And when they did that, I remember we, uh, having been, you know, brought up Catholics, well, most of us, apart from mum and dad, lapsed Catholics these days. But, you know, we, uh, we made a crucifix and, and put that on that spot. And, uh, in fact, took a photo. And I took some photos of the time. I had the peace of mind, you know, we didn't have, you know, um, iPhones at that stage, but took photos of that particular spot, just so that I wanted to make sure that we could uh, share that with the rest of the family so that I could see, you know, where Tom did die and uh, and uh, you know what the surroundings uh, look like and uh, and the like. Confronting enough to see uh, a dead body. Yep. Uh, I remember I, I first saw one when I was working with the VRC stewards and a young jockey had come off and it was dead on the racetrack and that was the first dead body I'd ever seen. Yeah. And uh, I was quite, you know, <laughs> stunned and shocked I'm just trying to think what it'd been like to have been looking at my brother, you know, like that. There's a realization that it's actually happened, that yep. you know, that someone has died. Yeah. Um, were you like that at the time? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Look, and and you know, to be <laughs> to be candid, we probably didn't want to get up too close because if you've come off a train, you know, uh, going at that at that speed, um, you know, you, you you don't come off uh, too well. And and he he sort of landed in this, which is why you know the the trains going by wouldn't have seen him. He landed in this sort of concrete culvert. Um, in the uh, on on the side of the track there, but um, but yeah, look, it was important to um, to, to to see him, but um, it was yeah, it was also you know it was it was pretty it was pretty confronting in uh, in that way, and and even I remember you know gosh when when we got the body home, Mum was pretty keen to to want to lay hands, and and we suggested that that probably wasn't a a, a great idea, but yes. um, yeah, but it was still it was really. It was important to go to that point, um, and it was important in terms of you know the the next stage that we all needed to move through. To, Did you, uh, I mean obviously the the funeral and everything when you you got back or subsequent funerals as I remember there was a few of them. Um, I mean, how did you? Uh, support each other collectively uh, post that time because I mean you're coming back to your wife uh, your brothers are going back to their wives you're informing your sister other brother of, you know, of what's happened um, and then of course there's your parents so and you're all living in in different well mostly different locations so as a family how did you get us how we were able to support each other but how did you get a sense if anyone was struggling like I mean as a parent I imagine you know mum and dad May well have grieved very differently, and hence that could have been you know, quite challenging for yeah. them. Yeah, I think it's. I think everyone does, right? Every, everyone does grieve differently, but I think the most important thing we did was um, we we communicated, and particularly throughout the search for Tom, and and then then post that. You know, we had a, a phone hook up 
the same time, you know, to, to match the time zones we were in, so that everyone was everyone was aware of what was happening and uh, and what we needed to uh, to do. And 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 then there's even the practicalities of what you need to do to get a, a body back from Spain, which you know there's some stories for another day of how you actually do that and, and what's involved. And and then really importantly, we all we all came together up in uh, northern New South Wales, where Mum and Dad are up in Ballina. Um, and, you know, they'd moved up there. They'd been up there for probably, I don't know, 15, 20 years by that time, so maybe 15 years by that uh, that time. Um, and and that's where we all came together. So all the, you know, all, all the family, you know, all the, uh, a lot of the friends, and there was a, a big funeral there in uh, in Ballina where mum and dad are. So that was really important to come together as, you know, as you said, he had a uh, <laughs> a big funeral in London for, you know, that his friends put on and another, uh, another big one down here in Melbourne. Um, but that coming together for, for family and friends was super important in terms of, you know, grieving and, and also, you know, rejoicing in the short life that, uh, that he had. He was a, he was a real character. Uh, Tommy loved life. He lived it to the fullest and uh, we had to make sure that we gave him the right send-off and we, we, we definitely did that at uh, Mum and Dad's uh, place there in Ballina. Um, but then, as you said, everyone everyone breaks off, and uh, and and even at that time, you're all dealing with it in in different ways. Um, you know, be that mum and dad, be that you know um, each of the each of the family members. I'll jump into talking about the work side in a, in a sec. But but 2002, nine or ten months later, you had Tom. Yes. Um, so you you have your first child, and you name him after your your late yes. brother. Yeah, yeah, it was, which was. Um, yeah, you know, Rachel and I at that stage, the end of uh, two thousand and one into two thousand and two, you know, we'd uh, been living up in in Sydney for three or four years then, and we thought, okay, it was time for us to start a family. So we'd been we'd been trying, and uh, and in fact, um, you know, there's not a whole lot of uh, romanticism most times with having children. And I remember before we, uh, you know, before we headed off to Spain, um, you know, in in the lead up to that, um, that that um, and then. You know, Rachel conceived shortly, uh, shortly thereafter, and um, nine months later, um, you know, we we got this, um, you know, this this great moment in in our family's life. It was uh, it was a real turning for, uh, and in fact, you know, when Rachel got pregnant, it was uh, at that point in time more so than probably the birth because it was the just the turning of of death and then and then life, life. again, mm. and uh, and and once again giving a, something for the for the family to be. You know, happy about that mm. was that was happening in that year, which was a pretty tough year to uh, to get through. So yeah, so our our Tom was uh, who just turned eighteen actually, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, was uh, was born literally nine months after uh, my brother Tom um, died. When you're thinking of you know, um, naming a child after a deceased sibling like that, was that yep. a discussion you had to have with your parents as well? Or? Oh yeah, it absolutely was. Yeah, yeah. There, I was I was really mindful of it. I mean, I was very close to Tom, and uh, you know, and I thought if we if we have a boy, so I absolutely you know checked in with uh, you know obviously my wife Rachel, and and she was supportive, and then uh, you know my parents and, and spoke to them and um, and. Um, and my siblings, just to, to see if they were uh, they were okay with that. Not not knowing, we didn't know we were having a boy. But, right. But um, uh, we went surprised with all of our three kids. We didn't know what they were, uh, which gender they were going to be. But um, uh, it was definitely something I checked in with, and uh, and it, it felt right at the time. And mm. uh, it's been a great way for us to to keep that name, you know, alive, and 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 a great way of keeping some of those memories of uh, of Tom or as Mott as we used to call him. That was uh, my brother. 
Tom's nickname from uh, a very early day, being the youngest, and he came back from kindergarten and written his name back the front. Uh, he wasn't dyslexic, but um, <laughs> but it was a great way of, of keeping uh, Mott's memory alive through uh, through our son Tom. So back to O two then earlier in the year. So you go back to work, yep. um, back into Optus. Yeah. How long did you have off work, and how was it going back? Yeah, look, uh, we we took a, a little bit of time off. I remember. Um, you know, we, uh, we we spent obviously two, or th- I think it was two or three weeks over in Spain until we'd, we'd found him, and then there was a transition back to uh, back home, and and the and the, the big funeral in, uh, in in New South Wales, and then my wife Rachel and I took some time. We went up to uh, Mum and Dad are in Ballina, so we just went to Byron Bay, which was close by for you know uh, probably three or four nights there, and and just sort of decompressed, which was which was really important to uh, to do, and then then headed back to to Sydney. And uh, back to Sydney, and then sort of back to work soon after. Um, and um, yeah, and and look, uh, look, I was at Optus at the time, and they were they were fantastic. They were super supportive, and um, and you know did did all the all the all, all the things that you could hope for. But uh, yeah, you you do get back to work, and I guess everyone else, you know, moves on as you understand. They go back to their lives, they go back to work, but then you've got this cloud sort of hanging over you. Mm. Um, and this grief that you're, uh, you know, that that's that's confronting you, and then you have to work out how you step through that. Well, it sounds like Optus being led by the, the person Paul at the time was Paul O'Sullivan. Paul O'Sullivan. Yeah. Um, I mean, for him to actually you know, get on the front foot, help you to get over there, um, sort of said a lot about the leadership of the organisation, didn't the way. Yep. I would have thought in the way they treated grief. Yep. Um, can you remember, you know, how when you got back to work, the smaller things that they they did do for you? Or yeah, it was less about the small. I think you know, organisations can you know they, they helped us out in in you know logistics and and resources and time away and and um, but but ultimately you know all those things are really important. But it's just that that human connection. So it's uh, it's people you know um, connecting with you and calling you. I mean you know even. Um, you know, you spoke earlier about when we found Tom's body. You know, when we got to that point, um, the first phone call I got was from was from Paul, um, and that was just coincidentally. He was just yeah. ringing in to check in to how see things how things were going. were going, and that was you know Saturday you know morning in uh, in Spain. And I said, you know, you won't won't believe it, but you know we've just found... anyway. So it, so it's as much around those little things and that care, and then I guess that comes down to. You know, uh, individuals, you know, caring enough um, about others and and doing those small things, as well as some of the other structured things that uh, that organisations. Had do. you had any experience with death at that stage of your life, or much experience other than a grandparent or something like that? No, exactly. For me, it was a grandparent. So uh, my father's um, uh, mother. So uh, yeah, Nana Powell. When I was in grade three, uh, so my uh, my mum's uh, parents had passed away when I was very young. So uh, I I didn't know them. So. Um, so it was only, yeah, it was only uh, Nana Powell. So and I was in grade three. I remember it being a, a sad time, but it, I, I was too young to really sort of um, comprehend it in in a in a, in a more uh, more mature way. So um, so this was my yeah my first you know um, you know experience. I mean, I'm not. I imagine it would have had an incredibly profound effect on your life going forward from there. But what I wanted to bring up was that um, when Bernadette died. Um, you gave me this book, um, Coping with Grief, by Mel and Diane McKissick. Yep. Um, and I understand that you'd given this book to many, many people um, yep. who you knew were grieving. Um, how did you find your way to this book and why yep. was it important 
Why has it been important for you to do that? Yeah, it um, you know it was it was well it was when um, Tom died and um, someone that I'd worked with in the Melbourne office, Sarah in um, in in the Melbourne office of Optus, um, sent me the book up to up to Sydney and because um, it was one of the many things I've worked out that you know once you've gone through. The, you know, uh, a, a death experience like that of a, of a loved one. So many more people open up to you about their experiences, um, and, and we're not good at doing death in this country and talking about it. Um, but a whole lot of you know, a number of people came out and shared their uh, their stories, and, and Sarah was one of those, and she did that via sending me this book. Um, and I didn't, I, I didn't understand what the stages of grief were or anything like that. Uh, and and this, she sent me this uh, this book, which became really important for me because it's a short book. It's 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 pretty concise, um, but it really for me just sort of <laughs> when I read through it. Um, it made me rationalise what I was going through, and that mm. I wasn't going crazy, and that actually all these steps that you go through—they're not linear. You know, you can swing back and forth, but you're not going insane. Um, so it was a really important book for me, um, and it was a really important, um, you know, reminder for me too that you know when you when when we went through that when we went through the experience with Tom's death, there's a whole lot of people who will say to you. Um, you know, let me know what I can do for you. You know, I'm here for you. Let me know what I can do for you. Um, and you, your headspace isn't in there with a list of things. And yep, you can do this and you can do that. Um, like, do something for someone. And and I remember Sarah did something. You know, she sent me that book and, and a nice message. So, so I've I've yeah I've, I've bought boxes of that um, of that of that book and and I share it with with people who have gone through a death experience themselves. It helped me out, and, and I hope in some way it can help others out. Well, it certainly helped me out because it's, it's um, as you say, it's 110 pages. It, uh, is, it's, it's very practical yep. um, in terms of just covering topics, you know, like the first seven days, the first 28 yep. days, six weeks. You know, what about this? What about that? Um, and, and I found it incredibly practical. Um, there's, a, there's a piece in it where in... Uh, um, being supportive, which you know, to me in, is talk about the workplace, but um, it, it's uh, supporting someone experiencing depression, sadness, and loneliness. The loneliness of grief is hard to describe, a feeling that seems to go to the very core of our being. As hard as it may be to imagine, the intensity and constancy of these feelings will not last forever. Grief will change, not be cured. Most bereaved people learn how to live with it if they receive the right kind of help. Teamwork is needed from this point because no one person can meet all the needs of someone who is passionately sad. Those who care could phone, write, send frequent emails or work out a roster for helping with practical tasks. It's important for supporters not to lock themselves into a predictable pattern, for example, by phoning every day or week at the same time. Life may make it impossible to meet rigid commitments and what is too predictable often loses value. What bereaved people need to be able to count on is that others care and won't disappear. Yep. And to me, that was just... Beautifully put, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it, it is. Yeah. And, and I, I thought of that uh, in my own experience in the workplace. And you thought, ultimately, it is about caring for people. But there's also a lot to be said um, for consistency. And, and, and not just the workplace, clearly, but you know, in, our, in our lives, our families, our communities and what have you. So how did you then progress through with your... You, know, you moved into a senior role at SEEK. Yep. Large organisation that was growing. Yep. 
Did you have many situations within that environment over time where people lost you know, people they yeah, lost? Yeah, um, look, a, a small number. There, um, you know, gosh, in my time at Seek, there was a lot of a uh, lot of very young people as as we were <laughs> were and 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 the the rest of the teams there. But um, you know, once again at, at at Seek, there was a you know it was a beautiful founder led. Um, environment that was very strongly values, you know, based with a with a great culture and a care for uh, for the people that are uh, that are there. And I was fortunate to have uh, you know ten years in that in that environment. So those sort of things happen naturally um, to a degree because of that culture and that uh, that environment that uh, that that Paul and Andrew and and Matt had originally created the founders of that business. Um, so I think we I think we did that I think we did that pretty well. But once again, I think it also helps. For um, I'm sure it's good to have experience in in a business where people have gone through some of those situations and you you know how to react. I mean, I, I gave that book to a number of uh, a number of seek people that um, you know that that had had those uh, those experiences. And I think um, as you just described and read from the book, it's it's having that care and and doing things for people. You know, as opposed to saying you know what can I do, um, you know do something for someone um, and um, and acknowledge. You know that something has happened because uh, I think uh, a number of people struggle um, with that. So I, I think acknowledging it and and doing something and and caring for people, um, I think goes a long way. Because one thing that I've sort of you know gleaned from the you know the interviews I've had to date and the discussions and what I've read, um, you know what we just talked about consistency and care, but small things like receiving a book, yep. um, you know they actually can really mean a lot to people. Yep. Some people may think, oh, God, I'm, I could be imposing by sending that book or I hope they don't take it the wrong way. But at the end of the day, I, I think, you know, generally people would, would receive it very favourably that you you are somebody that cares for them in this yep. moment. Yep, exactly. But but I think, you know, even by that gesture, you know, one, you're acknowledging what they're what they're going through and, and two, you're trying to... Uh, to help them um, step step through it, and and you know I always put a proviso on the note that I write, you know, on the card on, on those books that you know this worked for me. It may not work for you, but you know if if you do have a moment, and that moment could be tomorrow, it could be in you know X months time, it could be next year. You know, different people work through their their grief in different ways over over different timelines, but at least there's something there that maybe you planted a seed that may help them. Um, step yeah, and, and you know, and a few others I've spoken to have talked about that consistency of you know the organisation were great for a period of time, then it fell off a cliff. Yep. Um, you know, so you know, it's I think it, it's not easy um, on some levels to be there, but on others it is. You know, really, because you don't have to do a lot. Yep. You've just got to be, and you know, as it said there, not, not one person within a team in a workplace, within a family or a community, can be all things to that person. So. Let's have a chat about how we can potentially support someone, yep. you know, who is going through that. Even in the preparatory sense, too, I imagine if someone's terminally ill yep. and they're going to lose a mother, a father, yep. a brother, sister, partner, whatever, yeah. child, it's you know, like it's it's challenging. But if you're actually communicating, yep. I, I imagine it's got to be better than doing nothing, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. <laughs> and I think you know, like at, at uh, the organisations I've worked for, have had um, you know EAPs, employers, you know, employee assistance programs, and I think. Um, they're really important. They're they're really important, you know, to to have there for for people to to lean into and uh, and use, and and also I think to to add to, you know, if I think, you know, probably an employee, an EAP, um, probably didn't have a great focus on mental health maybe ten or fifteen years ago, and that's a that's a greater focus now. Um, so I think as long as they're adding to that and they're looking at it and um, and 
there's the right leadership in terms of um, you know how you use that and the support. Then you know that, that's another way I think you know, organisations can uh, can help out. Tell me, um, you've got a son called Tom after your brother. How do you keep Tom's legacy going other than through a name of your son, obviously? <laughs> but I remember you mentioned recently to me about clothes and something like that, which I thought was a yeah. was a nice touch as well. Yeah, no, it is. I, I think um, I think there's just different way different ways you can do that. You know, for me, I've always kept a jumper from um, you know when all his gear came back from uh, London. I remember being up at Mum and Dad's at the time when the boxes arrived, and you know that was a pretty confronting thing to to go through all of his gear, and we sort of itemised it. And then I remember emailing the uh, the rest of the family saying, you know, if there's something of Tom's that you want. And I think everyone took up that uh, that offer. And, and for me, it was a jumper. You know, I, I took a jumper because it, I felt it was something that was uh, close to him. And uh, um, and I've sort of taken that everywhere um, that, uh, you know, that, that we've lived over that uh, over that you know, journey of 18 years since he's died. And in fact, um, you know, I, I gave it to, to my son, Tom, recently. He was looking for a jumper and I said, try this one on. And he said, oh, this is, this is pretty good. And I said, well, that's, <laughs> that's, uh, that's a pretty special jumper, that one. So, you know, he's, he's wearing that. And even, uh, you know, uh, it was only this year, I think, we are up seeing mum and dad earlier in the year and, and mum pulled out one of Tom's uh, St. Virgil's College where we went to school in Hobart. You know, his rugby jumper from, uh, from there and, uh, and that fits Matty, you know, our, uh, our second child. And, uh, you know, Matty wears that around the house now. So, you know, I, I, <laughs> I see that and that keeps it alive. And I, I think there's lots of different ways. You can do it through images. You can do it through anniversaries. Um, you can do it just through general, you know, um, you know, chit chat, um, mm. you know, and and in certain situations that happen. I remember, you know, the 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 wake that we had up at Mum and Dad's, a massive big rainbow went up over the back of um, where they are. Sort of a storm came through towards the end of the day, and and a beautiful massive big rainbow. So our family has this connection with Tom through rainbows, and and when we see rainbows, and my family, you know, my kids know that too. So we always. Uh, we always remember uh, that, and and even you know to, to extend the story. And I guess you're always looking for these things too. I think yes. when um, and having that connection, which I think is important. But uh, I remember even driving back here on Grand Final Eve of 2017 back home, and um, um, a rainstorm came through, and I was driving down our street here, and this massive big uh, rainbow went up at the end of our, our street where we live, and. I thought, oh my God, like that—that's the omen. I think. Tigers I think, are home. I think we're home tomorrow. <laughs> and, uh, I was maybe it was wishful thinking, but we did. So um, anyway, there's. I think there's lots of different ways that uh, that hopefully we keep uh, yeah Tom's memory alive. So just to conclude, when you, I mean, what advice would you give to to people that are around those that are grieving, particularly in a workplace? Yeah, I think in a workplace, I, I think there's formal. Um, you know, programs that I think are really important. I mean, I sought, you know, professional help. That was really important for me to to work through, to be able to go to someone independent um, and and talk through what you're feeling and what you're experiencing. So I think from a work perspective, those formal programs are, are, are really important. Um, I think, you know, connecting in with them and caring and, and not just thinking because they're back at work that everything must be must be fine. So I think you know checking in from time to time to see how they're uh, to see how they're uh, they're, they're travelling. I think that's really important. Um, and I, I think just being you know providing some flexibility. You know, like feeling like you know if they do need to take some time out, they can do it. I, I remember one one day at Optus, the first couple of weeks back, I just started crying at my desk. You know, and, and people around must have been you know to a degree probably knew why, but 
but maybe I shouldn't have been at work that day, but I felt obliged to do it. So I think having people that care um, and, and and can support you in that uh, in that environment and give you the space where you need it and, and the flexibility, but but also wrapping around something formally that if you you know if things do get dark and you can have some dark times that there is professional help you, you can you can you know really seek out to uh, to help you uh, work through it. Um, and you know that worked for me. The other thing that worked for me was journaling. Um, you know, I, I remember later that year, Rachel and I, we went up to, um, I think we went up to um, Thailand, I think, for, for a period of time to get away. And uh, and the journaling was really important for me. And I'd read about that, I think, in the book there. And um, I took an exercise book up and I wrote pages and pages and pages um, of stuff, which was a really good release for me and to express my feelings. Um and that was important uh, as well. So I think there's a lot of different things that you can do, but I think if you're in an organisation that has that professional component support to it and then you can sort of work out and try some different things to, to help you step through it. Well, I think the other thing too you said, which is interesting, when you're reading the book and you're, you're getting examples or, and you're you know, reading about what you know, specialists are saying, you realise, as you said, you're not going mad. This is actually a very normal process that you're going through. I, I felt like that because what I gleaned from the reading that I'd done, that I was following a pretty traditional path. Yep. Um, and, and you sort of realise, look, this isn't going to be easy. Um, I know that. Yep. But there are things that I can do. You know, and journaling was one for me as well. Exercise was another. Yep. You know, just things and trying to stay connected and not, which is not. I mean, it's very. I mean, it's each, each to their own, clearly. But yep. But and you personally may not allow that. Mine, thankfully, did to be able to talk to people. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I think those things, the sort of things that you know, I got from. Yeah, I think so. And I think the other thing is, if if you if you know someone who's going through that and they and they they look like they've just returned back to normal very quickly, then for me that would be. You know, and a, a red flag going yeah, up because I think you you need to deal with your grief and and there are steps as you said you're not going insane there are steps that we all go through and we might go through them in different ways and take different time frames to uh, to get through them and circle back and start again but you do need to work through it and I think if you don't then I think you're only delaying something that could be you know could be harder to deal with down the track at some stage later on yeah yeah true yeah, yeah. well mate thank you very much for. Uh, joining me today um, and uh, what a shame we were in these COVID times we could maybe uh, charge our glasses and have one for Tom. Absolutely mate I'll, uh, I'll, I'll do that and, uh, and thanks for the opportunity Milt. I'm Milton Walters and you've been listening to Adapting in My Grief. One of the goals of this podcast is to talk about how we deal with grief in the workplace and how we can possibly do it better. So head over to our website, adapting.com.au, to learn more or indeed share a story or an insight that you might have that you think could be of value to this end. During the conversations throughout the series, if there are any triggers that cause you concern, anxiety or make you feel in any way uncomfortable, please seek professional assistance through some of the many great organisations providing invaluable mental health support and services, for example, Beyond Blue and Lifeline, to name just a few. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please feel free to rate and review it and also to subscribe to it. This podcast is produced by Neely Media in Melbourne. Additional sound engineering by I Explain IT in Port Ferry. And the music is by Sophia Whitney.